Time for our weekly conversation with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, Michael Mulligan joining us. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Interesting topics on the agenda today, including one that has to do with, I know that there was a recent finding by the Supreme Court of Canada on this general issue, and you're going to help us understand this in terms of consent to sexual activity and the wearing of a condom. Yes, indeed. And this is a a case uh, that just came out from the Supreme Court of Canada, and it follows on a couple of other cases over the years that deal with this concept of what is consent to sexual activity and when can that consent be vitiated by fraud. Uh, And the starting point is that uh, sexual activity requires a person to consent in advance to engage in the uh, languages sexual activity in question. Uh, but uh, like most human affairs, well, a phrase that might sound clear when you first read it, uh, quickly winds up uh, muddied when you get into the weeds. Um, and the recent fact pattern that the Supreme Court of Canada just dealt with uh, was a woman who met a man uh, online, one of those online uh, dating sites or apps, uh, met, spent a couple of hours, they seemed compatible, uh, and they went off to engage in sexual activity. Uh, During that conversation, they talked about uh, her uh, always wanting to use a condom, or at least that's what she expressed in uh, some text messages with this fellow. They engaged in sexual activity, which she consented to, a condom was used. Later in the evening, they engaged in further sexual activity, which she appeared to consent to in a physical way, um, but it turned out a condom was not used. And on that fact pattern, the man was charged with sexual assault. Um, And at his trial, this was all in British Columbia, there was an application brought after that evidence was led uh, for uh, what's called a no evidence motion, saying the Crown hadn't established some evidence of all the elements of the offence. And the judge in that case was applying an earlier Supreme Court of Canada case, which also dealt with concept of consent. In that case, what happened is that the uh, man had poked holes in condoms that were used, uh, and it resulted in his partner becoming pregnant. Uh, and the way the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with that earlier case with the condoms with holes poked in them mm-hmm. um, is that they used a provision of the uh, code dealing with consent that says that consent can be like initiated. It doesn't mean that it's an actual legal consent if there was fraud. A- and in that case, the Supreme Court of Canada found that the person had, the woman had uh, consented to the sexual activity in question, but the fraud of him deceptively um, sabotaging the condoms uh, meant that the consent didn't count. Uh, and so there was a conviction, but it was premised on that idea of what was a gr- what physically happened was consented to, but fraud meant that it didn't count. So the judge in the current case uh, found that there was no evidence of fraud. Hmm. The man hadn't um, secretly done something or lied to her. He just didn't use a condom, Uh, and otherwise what happened was entirely consensual. Uh, And so the judge said, well, look, I'm applying this earlier trial judge, earlier Supreme Court of Canada case, also dealing with condoms, and saying, well, that case, the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with it by finding, yes, the activity in question was agreed to, there was consent, tick, but there was fraud, so it didn't count. 
But in the current case, the trial judge said, well, I don't see any evidence of fraud. He didn't say anything to her. He didn't claim that he was uh, using one when he wasn't. It's just that she had earlier said, I always want to use a condom. That's what I'm agreeing to. Now, that, that this fact pattern then got all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada, in this case, took a different approach to it. And the Supreme Court found that the meaning of sexual activity in question does include the concept of sexual activity while using a condom. Uh, And therefore, it wasn't necessary for there to be an assessment as to whether the other person had engaged in fraud, because all of the elements of fraud didn't seem to be present. Mm. Um, And so the result now from the Supreme Court of Canada is that sexual activity in question is being defined in a broader way to include that concept of using a condom. Uh, and so because there has to be prior consent, it's got to be expressed, where you've got prior consent, and it's clear that the consent is only to engaging in some activity using a condom, if one is not used, there doesn't need to be an assessment as to whether there is fraud, uh, and therefore uh, there could be a conviction where one isn't used. The other sort of analogous fact pattern, which the Supreme Court of Canada also had to struggle with um, in the past, using these same sections and language, mm-hmm. uh, is what happens if somebody doesn't disclose their HIV status yes. uh, and engages in activity? Is there consent? Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada has found that where there's a failure to disclose that, and where there's a realistic risk of endangering the other person, like a condom is not used or circumstances where there could be a realistic risk of danger and transmission, uh, that again, there isn't consent. And so we've had over the years, um, uh, I think I looked at the stat, it was over 100 people who have been convicted of sexual assault for failing to disclose their HIV status. The idea is that that wasn't what the other person agreed to. But Obviously, these are muddy waters, right? Because when we're talking about this concept of consent, what if the uh, uh, woman claimed to have been using birth control but wasn't? Does that mean there's no consent? Does that mean she's guilty of sexual assault? Hmm. And so I don't think this area of the law is going to be settled for some time. uh, But those are the terms that the Supreme Court of Canada and other courts have had to deal with, right? Because, of course, you know, the courts are trying to interpret what did Parliament mean when it says, right, there must be voluntary agreement to, quote, engage in the sexual activity in question, close quote. What is that? Does that mean the condom use? Does it mean you're, in fact, using birth control? What about the disclosure of other medical conditions? What if somebody doesn't disclose that they have COVID? and engage in activity. Does that mean there was no consent to it? That might be a way you could transmit it, right? Close contact. So how far does that go? Um, And these are the kind of challenges, of course, that courts have to deal with every day. Because even when you look at language that seems kind of clear when you first read it, right? If somebody said, well, here's the provision, you need to, right, have prior consent to, quote, engage in the sexual activity in question. You know, without thinking about all of these odd scenarios, I think a lot of people might look at that and say, oh, yes, I understand what that means. Did the other person say, yes, they wish to do this, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but these are the kinds of human wrinkles that make the law challenging uh, and interesting 
when you have to sort out those subtleties. You know, what do we do when the person has said, oh, yes, and is an enthusiastic participant in the physical activity, but, you know, they were misled about somebody's medical status or the use of birth control or whatever it might be. How does that fit in to that question? And so we have one more um, answer to that. And so the result uh, from the Supreme Court of Canada decision will mean that in the particular case, which is from British Columbia, uh, there will now presumptively be a a trial uh, to determine uh, whether the uh, person uh, is guilty or not of sexual assault, bearing in mind what the Supreme Court of Canada has said about what it means to uh, consent to the sexual activity in question. Uh, and it's a bit of a different approach than they took with the last condom case. So we'll have to look and see uh, how exactly that plays out. All right. Legally speaking here on CFAX 1070, I think that's a good opportunity to take our first break. We'll be back right after this. All right. Legally speaking continues. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Where were we, Michael? Well, the, the next case on the agenda deals with the issue of lawyers quitting, essentially, uh, prior to a trial or during a trial even. Um, And the background of it is that uh, a few years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, came out with a decision that concluded that there were some circumstances in which a lawyer may not be permitted to quit or withdraw from a criminal case. Um, And examples of that, or or the principal reason for that, might be financial reasons. Let's say a lawyer hasn't been paid right, to conduct a trial. Uh, and then a very short time before the trial, the lawyer says, like, I just want to quit. I haven't been paid. The Supreme Court of Canada said that there are some limited circumstances where a court could refuse to let the lawyer quit. They would look at things like, could the person represent themselves? Could they get another lawyer to help them? Would there be some serious prejudice to, let's say, a co-accused? You know, let's say you had two people uh, charged with something, and if uh, one lawyer quits, the other person's going to have to remain in jail. Well, the first one gets a new lawyer, right? Um, Or some other prejudice. Uh, But the Supreme Court of Canada also found that there are other circumstances in which uh, a lawyer has an absolute right to withdraw, and a court can't ask any questions about it. Mm -hmm. For example, for ethical reasons, like one of those that can arise is uh, a lawyer has an ethical obligation not to uh, have a client perjure themselves, right? Yeah. So like if a, if a client says to their lawyer in a criminal case, I robbed the bank, but I'm going to get up there and blame it on Bob. <laughs> That's what I want to do. Yeah. The lawyer cannot participate in that. I see. Um, and the lawyer would, would say, look, I, I quit. And I could be right in the middle of the trial. I'm not participating in somebody who's going to lie. Uh, or there could be other problems. Like let's say, for example, in the case that uh, I'm going to talk about, um, there can be a circumstance where the lawyer can't get instructions from a client. They just fail to respond, right? The lawyer's calling and emailing and writing saying, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Yeah. And the client just has fallen off the map and won't uh, provide proper instructions. Again, the lawyer could well withdraw because how are they supposed to continue? They don't know what the person wants to do. And if a lawyer's withdrawing or quitting for those kinds of reasons, uh, a court or judge has no authority to ask anything about it. The lawyer could just say, look, I'm withdrawing for ethical reasons. That's it. Um, otherwise, it might, for example, reveal, you know, the contents of solicitor client privilege conversations. For example, somebody saying, I want to lie about Bob robbing the bank. Right. Yeah. So that's why a judge cannot ask about it. If a lawyer says this is for ethical reasons. Um, 
But the case in question uh, involved, interestingly, not a criminal case, but instead a child apprehension case. And that would be a case where the provincial director of child protection is looking to apprehend children, take them away from a parent. Um, And it's a case where there had been a long, complex history, uh, and there was a trial scheduled. And the lawyer, who was acting for one of the parents, um, advised the court, I can't get instructions, I need to withdraw. And so the provincial lawyer uh, was trying to uh, get the judge to not let the lawyer quit because they didn't want the case getting put off uh, because there were kids involved and it had been outstanding for a long time. And so they went to court and they tried to persuade the judge not to allow the lawyer who was acting for one of the parents to withdraw because of the prejudice it would have on, you know, the kids. Uh, But ultimately, the judge found that while those principles involving criminal cases do apply in child protection cases, right, some of those interests like could the person represent themselves, could they get other counsel, or would it prejudice other people, all those are legitimate things to inquire about where a lawyer is withdrawing for financial reasons, person hasn't paid their bill. Uh, But here, the reason the lawyer was looking to withdraw is that they were simply unable to get uh, proper instructions from their client. They had been writing and emailing and calling, uh, and the person had just stopped responding to the lawyer for whatever reason. Uh, And so the lawyer wasn't able to prepare for the trial. And even though shortly before this application to try to force the lawyer to continue, uh, he'd finally gotten a hold of the client, they still weren't responding with any meaningful instructions. And so the judge found that In those circumstances, the judge had no authority to require the lawyer to continue, right? What does that possibly look like, right? Uh, And so despite those efforts, the lawyer was perfectly permitted to uh, withdraw. And the Supreme Court of Canada has made clear as well that judges are required to simply take at face value what the lawyer is telling them about why they are withdrawing. And the lawyer stands up and says, I have a uh, ethical issue, I must withdraw. A uh, judge can't be prying into that saying, well, what did your client tell you? Or what are they planning to do? <laughs> right? Yeah. For pretty obvious reasons. Um, and so uh, that's the state of the law. There are these restrictions on lawyers withdrawing that would apply both to criminal and child protection matters, uh, but only in circumstances where the reason for withdrawal is not ethical but financial. Uh, and where a series of uh, criteria would be uh, made out. And as a practical matter, um, this is why virtually any lawyer who you'd want to have acting for you would ordinarily require a person to put into trust, like to pay into the lawyer's trust account, uh, the fees that would be expected to conduct the trial well in advance of the trial, so that if a person decided they didn't want to or couldn't pay the fees, the lawyer would be in a position to withdraw in a timely way so that court time wouldn't be wasted and nobody would be prejudiced and the person could then have to go make other arrangements for a lawyer. And so all of this is perhaps an explanation for people uh, as to why lawyers uh, would invariably require uh, fees to be put into trust well before a trial um, so that a lawyer could meet their obligations to the court and to co-accuse and others uh, and not be in a circumstance where uh, they're standing in court a week before a 
complicated trial saying I have to quit. <laughs> the person hasn't paid yeah. uh, because there may be circumstances where that just doesn't work. Um, so that's the uh, latest on when lawyers can quit and when it applies and when questions can be asked about it and simply when they cannot. All right. We've got six minutes and 20 seconds left and one perhaps complicated story, but I'm sure we can get through it. Yeah, I think we can probably summarize this one. This is a decision over the B.C. Court of Appeal, uh, and it involves the concept of unjust enrichment. And the fact pattern was a uh, man and woman uh, over in the Lower Mainland uh, got married, uh, and they wound up renting a house from the husband's father-in-law, the husband's, or husband's father, right? The father-in-law of the person claiming unjust enrichment. They rented this house for three years from the father-in-law, uh, and then the marriage broke down, and they separated. Right. Um, and what happened was that the um, former wife uh, tried to make a claim that the father, her ex-father-in-law had been what's called unjustly enriched by her contributions to the home over that three-year period of time when she lived there with her uh, ex-husband. Uh, and there can be principles where that concept does apply. Like, let's say, for example, uh, you had two people who um, lived together uh, and shared the cost of a mortgage for a period of time, right, without any kind of a written agreement. And then the relationship break, broke down. You could well have a circumstance where a court would find that the person who's nominally listed as the owner of the house would be required to pay some compensation to the other person who helped pay the mortgage, right? The idea is, hey, it wasn't the concept that you would just get the benefit of a bunch of mortgage payments for 10 years, right? Um, and so that's what, in this case, the um, ex-wife was alleging. She was claiming that she had uh, contributed uh, to the maintenance of the house and had uh, contributed to uh, uh, payments uh, that the uh, uh, her ex-father-in-law uh, had made, and she was therefore claiming uh, that there was this concept of unjust enrichment. Now, that did not succeed um, either at the trial or ultimately in the Court of Appeal. Um, and the reason for that has to do with uh, how that concept of unjust enrichment, which is an equitable concept, uh, works when there is um, a contract in place. Some of those equitable principles have been developed, like unjust enrichment, over the years by courts to achieve fairness, basically, right, where there is no uh, contract or agreement in place. But in this particular case, there was a rental agreement uh, in place between the couple uh, and the father of the husband, father-in-law of the person uh, who was making this claim for unjust enrichment. Um, and the law is such that those equitable principles like unjust enrichment uh, may not apply where there is a um, sort of a legal contract in place setting out what the nature of this agreement was. Uh, and here there was a rental agreement where there was rent paid to the father-slash-father-in-law for the home. Um, and as a result of that, both the trial judge and then ultimately the Court of Appeal um, found that that prevented this kind of an equitable claim being made, the unjust enrichment claim. Uh, 
Um, and there is an important takeaway for people from all of this when there are these kinds of um, sort of family uh, arrangements put in place, right? I don't think this would be necessarily a, a strange or unique circumstance, right? Where you've got parents who appear to have been trying to help out their son and daughter-in-law uh, because in this case, they were paying them uh, rent, which was well below what the market rent would have been for a similar home. And the important takeaway from this case is just how important it is to make sure that what's going on is properly documented, right? In this case, there was a tenancy agreement. Uh, and so on that basis, this claim for unjust enrichment uh, was unsuccessful. But it's likely that, or at least entirely possible that, if you had a similar circumstance with parents trying to help out their son and daughter-in-law, had they not uh, created the rental agreement, so it was clear that they were paying rent and not you know, helping to pay the mortgage, for example, uh, there could well have been uh, a different outcome. Um, and so uh, once again in life, this is an example of uh, where you will do everyone a favor if you make clear at the outset what a particular arrangement is lest there be a uh, decision later that might not be in accordance with what anyone had in mind, uh, at least at the outset. So once again, the uh, legal advice would be get it in writing uh, to avoid uh, discontent and argument later. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defence Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Thank you as always, Michael. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye now.